Welcome to Terrible, the podcast where two friends discuss true crime stories in hopes to prepare themselves for life's most terrible things. Quick disclaimer, the following podcast will include graphic and explicit content. Our goal is to respect victims and their families. We do not want to sensationalize crimes or glorify criminals. We are not experts. We want to tell these stories in order to learn from them and make sure victims and their families are not forgotten. I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. Marie, on the other hand, has recently delved into all that is true crime. We both believe that once you watch or listen to your first case, there's no going back. So let's do this. Just before we get started, we want to mention that we do have a merch store. There's lots of great stuff on there, so if you guys want to check it out and support the show, you can find us on Etsy and look us up at Terrible True Crime. The last thing is that it really helps when you rate the show and leave a comment or a review wherever you listen. All right, let's get into some updates. So I feel like I have a lot to talk about this week. The first thing I want to mention was that in my regular day job life, I was writing an email introducing myself to someone who didn't know who I was. And as I was typing, I went, hi, I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. And I immediately just was like, I don't, that just, it's so stuck in my, I'm Renee, a longtime true crime enthusiast. And it's like backspace, back. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm Renee. Title of my professional job. Oh my God, imagine if you just like accidentally you left that. When <laughs> oh true crime God. consumes your life, literally. <laughs> it does. I just laughed out loud, and I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to tell Maggie. And this happened like last week, so. <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, the other thing is, last week I told you guys that we were planning on going camping. The camping trip went well. It was successful. We were warm and we packed very well and we spent a nice night in the mountains with some friends. So yeah, so I feel a bit more confident about our our camping gear now. (laughs) I'm really glad it went well. I think you needed that one first camping trip to just get it out of the way and make sure, you know, get all the, the scary thoughts behind you. Yes, yes. And it's funny because the couple we were with, um, they've listened to the podcast before. And Matt, my boyfriend, was bringing up the episode that we did about camping. And I was like, no, no. Like, I was like, stop. Like, nobody needs that to live in their brain tonight while we no. sleep. Like, no. only Bad timing. Me. Yeah, because Matt hasn't even listened to it. So he doesn't even really know. He knows like the Sparks Notes version of what I've probably ranted and screamed about as I'm doing my research. And he was trying to get me to like say it over the campfire. And I was like, absolutely not. Like nobody's going to sleep tonight. So it's like a spooky like campfire story playing the podcast out loud by the campfire while camping. Oh my God. Oh, yes, that would get me. And the last thing is a couple weekends ago, my parents were in town and I went to a liquor store with my mom and this like, I guess maybe like 20 year old guy who worked at the liquor store, he comes up to me and my mom and he like cards me. Meanwhile, like my dad's in the beer fridge getting his beer. I'm not even buying anything. And he like leaves the front desk to come and card me. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not buying anything, but sure. Were you holding anything? No, I hadn't touched oh. a thing. My dad was just buying beer. I was just in the store to like warm up and like look at stuff. Like I hadn't, but anyway. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm not buying anything. And like, I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm, you know, 25. <laughs> and this guy couldn't have been more than 20 years old. And he just looks at me and he's like, sorry, it's just sometimes parents come in here and buy liquor for their kids. So I just wanted to make sure. I was so, <laughs> I was oh so insulted. God. I am so past the legal drinking age and the fact that he was looking looking at me, looking at my mom, and he was like, this mom is definitely in here buying liquor for her underage daughter. Like, as if I was, like, 18 or younger. (laughs) 
and I know some people will say like you should be flattered especially just, the employee being yo- like oh my God, visibly so younger yeah so much younger than me <laughs> so. he's just like are you serious you know that guy's gonna work there for the rest of his life he's so like into it <laughs> I guess so but he was the thing is he was wearing like a skater hat like like he was just like this chill like and I was like all right like I need to go I get why they have to do it you should card people but you don't need to tell me that you think that my mom is here <laughs> supplying me with alcohol when I'm 25 years old like I was like sir <laughs> Those are my anecdotes for the week. And something else that I wanted to talk about before Marie gets into her updates is that it's been coming up on my newsfeed a lot. And I'm hoping we can start kind of throwing these in a little bit on our updates. But there's a five-year-old boy named Frank Young who's been missing since April 19th. So he's from the Red Earth Cree Nation that is located more than 200 kilometers east of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. They've been looking for him for, I guess, over 28 days now. And there really hasn't been that much information out there. The following is from his grandmother, Teresa Whitecap. Frank used to love playing outside with the neighborhood children. He was creative, he was fun and loving. Frank took pride in making things for his caregiver, Barb. He was so proud of the things he made for her. She says the family's overwhelmed with worry and grief and is grateful for the support they have received and continue to receive help to bring little Frank home. The grandmother continues by saying, The day that Frank went missing, everybody acted right away. Ever since day one, when Frank went missing, we became a family. My family is very strong and we come together as one. I think he was playing outside. It said he was last seen in his home community. So I'm assuming this means he was around his neighborhood, but he really has just disappeared. And the Saskatchewan RCMP doesn't have much information about him. He's a young indigenous boy. He has uh, tan skin, dark hair. We'll post a picture of him. He also has dark eyes, but I mean, if anyone has any information or just just keep your eyes out because really, as we always say, this boy didn't just run away or drop off the face of the earth. So we really do hope that Frank gets to return home to his community. That's so hard when there's like no information to go off of either. He's just pretty much vanished. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if there's anything we know about these communities is that they're really, really strong and they're really coming together to try and get the word out. And I think he has been in the media and people have been talking about him, but obviously everyone wishes there was more information. So we'll try to keep you updated. I really hope that we have some updates. Um, but yeah, we hope that Frank comes home. On a hopefully happier note, Marie can take over. <laughs> this past weekend, I had my sister-in-law's like small bachelorette party. So I took the day off on Friday and we were going shopping to see if we could find like uh, a dress for me to wear at their wedding, at my brother and uh, my sister-in-law's wedding. Anyways, I took the day off. It was Friday <laughs> the 13th, mind yes. you. So I should have woke up up and realize that this is not going to be a good start to the day. I'm driving over to my mom's house and I get my first flat tire that I've ever gotten in my life. Thank God I wasn't on the highway. I was slowing down because it was a red light and then it just kind of like popped. Did you feel like or hear a big pop? Both. Yeah, I felt it and I heard it and I was like, did I just get in a car accident? Like, what was that? I had no idea what it was. And all the cars around me were like looking like because they heard it too. And then they were like pointing down at my tire. I parked the car. I get out. I'm like, damn, there's this nice lady in one of the cars like, sweetie, sweetie, it's your tire. Do you need help? Like, do you need me to call Aww, anyone? They're like, you? yeah, call oh my, my mom. Oh my God. Like, Thank you. I was actually pretty good. I didn't cry. So like, oh, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm proud of myself. <laughs> um, I, was like, I was like, thank you. It's okay. I'll call my dad. <laughs> obviously um 
So she's like, just pull over into this parking lot and and call someone and you'll be okay. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I pull over, call my dad. It was literally right beside my brother's work. So my brother just got out and came to say hi, see if I was okay. (laughs) And then I called uh, my boyfriend just to let him know what had happened. And he's like, I'm on my way. So now I have these three men changing my tire for me staring at your car yeah. and I'm like, I'm like trying to understand how like this is happening I'm like trying to learn so that next time you know I can do it myself if I really need to I was like wow I love I love men thank you for being here <laughs> you know I'm like okay appreciate it yes. appreciate it so like, I want to be an independent woman <laughs> yes. only to a certain extent because if I need your help I need you to be there <laughs> so now I know how to change a tire it's pretty great um I think I actually could if I really had to do it on my own so there's that the rest of the day was great though so you know did you just, find a dress I did yeah you did mm-hmm. oh, from Nordstrom fun. yeah it's really cute it's like a really long um like floral dress oh, it's nice. like a formal dress yeah it's really cute the other thing I really need answers to is to know if any of you guys are nappers like do any of you guys nap because I've realized like the longer time goes on the more I want to nap like I nap at least three times a week is that bad? Napping is an art. There are people that can nap and just be, if I'm going to sleep, like, good night. <laughs> like, you're not waking me up. So I, I feel like I'm not the right person to say, like, yes or no, because I can't do, like, the light but, like, restful sleep. I can go, like, deep sleep and then, like, extremely cranky when I wake up if mm. I have to wake up after, like, two hours or so. I okay. feel like that's not that often. Like before recording right now, I just took a 40 minute nap. That's like, awesome. I wish I could do that. But it's like annoying at the same time. It's like, yeah, like feels good. You're like so tired, you know, you just fall asleep. But at the same time, it's like, okay, like it's a weeknight. I don't have that much time. Can I just like not sleep and enjoy it? Because I'll have to wake up and just do it all over again tomorrow. Like, do you ever not want to go to sleep at night? Because you're like, oh, then I just have to wake up and like work tomorrow. Kind of. But most of the time, I'm just super excited to sleep. Like, I just <laughs> love sleeping that I'm like, yes, my favorite part of the day. <laughs> oh, my God. That's awesome. Take it as self-care. <laughs> okay. You know what? That made me feel better. Thanks. Renee. We'll throw a poll up on our Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Are you a napper or are you not a napper? <laughs> I just saw what we're doing. Oh, I told you not to do that. I just looked at the sources. Oh my God, you guys are actually Okay, wait, wait, okay. So we are doing Marie's case suggestion. Okay, so we are gonna pause and then start back over again. We start the case, but that was her raw reaction because she did not know that I researched this case and that's what we were doing this week. So she'll let Mm. you know what her personal connection to the case is and we'll get right into it now. So for our sources this week, we have a couple pages from Wikipedia. We have a page from eLearning Ontario, a CTV News Windsor article, a news article from TVA Nouvelle by Amélie Saint-Yves, a CBC article by Stéphanie Marin, a couple other CBC articles, two articles from Le Nouvelliste by Gabrielle Delille, and finally we have a CTV News Montreal article by Kevin Gould. Our case this week takes place in Trois-Rivières, Quebec. We are discussing Cédrica Provencher. So... Like I said earlier, this was Marie's pick of the episode, and she had no idea I was covering it, as per usual. So Marie, why don't you tell everyone, and honestly, I don't really know that much background about how you feel connected to this case in a way, so go ahead. So basically, when she went missing, or around the time she went missing, I was in Trois-Rivières, 
and I was with my grandma and my mom. We were in a parking lot somewhere. I don't remember where we were going because this was so long ago, but I just remember her posters being kind of everywhere. Like everywhere I looked, missing person, Cedrica. We were around the same age. And I think that's the first time where I was like, this is scary. Like the world is a scary place kind of thing. I'm like, Mm -hmm. this could happen to me. I could go missing. What could happen? And I think it kind of just triggered this thing in me where after seeing her as a missing person, I have ever since still to this day, I'm 26. I am terrified of being kidnapped. And I, I honestly think it's because I don't know what happened when I saw her poster, but there was just something about her going missing. And I think probably it's because we were the same age. I was like, this could happen to really anyone. I'm in a place right now where she went missing. Like there's scary people here. There's scary people really everywhere. Cedrica, I will never, I will never forget her like ever. And I think even like since then, I've never searched anything about her case. I've seen like a couple of things. I don't want to say more recently because I think it was still a few years ago when it was kind of brought back up, but like, I didn't even want to look. I don't know why it just touched my heart so much. Oh, Cedrica. Well, I I think like you said it, like it's the moment that you realize as a child Mm -hmm. that like the world is not as safe as you think it is. And like bad things do happen to people. Mm -hmm. And that moment just for sure is I mean, I can attest this. I had no idea of any of this. And you have had a fear of kidnapping since I've known you. So for years and years, yeah. he's been afraid of getting kidnapped out of her own house. Like, mm-hmm. that, that's why she was never a true crime fan. Never. Because mm-hmm. that stuff just freaked her out. So, yeah. And even after I saw her poster, I would see missing persons posters all the time after that. Like in Walmart, they I don't think they have it anymore. But they used to have a huge billboard when you left the store that would have... Mm-hmm literally probably like at least 25 missing posters of missing children and I would look at it every time and just get full body chills like I was terrified so Cedrica was the start of it all I feel like it's kind of special in a way that like you have this connection to her and Mm -hmm. you just saw that poster and you've just her memory has stuck with you through your whole life literally yeah and I was young when this happened and like Mm -hmm. I I've always remembered her name I remember her face on the missing poster and her little outfit that she had on like I I will never forget and I have no personal ties to her I just that moment I was like this little girl I could that could be me you know like it was just so scary so I have a case like that like a case that has just stuck with me and that I've Mm -hmm. just never and it all came from me seeing a picture on a billboard so eventually I'll have to cover that case as well it's not like a this could be me situation but it's the I can't let go of this Mm -hmm. like it just like stuck with me for so long yeah so I hate that I get to tell you but I love that I get to tell you this story or this case for really the first time since you've only gotten bits and pieces so I hope you enjoy it Cedrica was born to parents Martin and Karine on August 29th of 1997 so she's a year younger than us the couple also had another daughter named Melissa in July of 2007 Cedrica is nine years old on the 31st Cedrica and her sister Melissa asked their mom if they can go out to play it's around 6 p.m. and mom agrees and the two girls head out on their bikes they live in a pretty safe suburban area so she just asked the girls to come back around nine o'clock This is July, so it's probably maybe just starting to get dark around 9 o'clock. The sun really is like fully down, I think around 10 maybe I'd say. So I'm sure this is a very normal thing that the girls do. I mean, I did it, you know, that kind of famous like older saying, like when the streetlights come on, like come back home. And I don't want to say, yeah, and I don't want to say like we're that old because we're really not, but 
And no. so I don't want to say back in the day, but I feel like back in the day, we used to play outside a lot more than kids do nowadays. So like this was more normal than maybe it would be now. Yeah, we were like right on the verge of like, we like I didn't have a cell phone probably until I was like 15 or 16. So like we're right on the verge of we didn't have that type of communication. So it was, you know, wear a watch or keep an eye out. And when you're at your friend's house, look at the time and come back around this time. And it was go out and ride your bike. That's what it was. So the night goes on as normal. But when 9pm rolls around, only Melissa comes back home. Martin and Karen know something is wrong immediately. They go out to look for Cedrica. It's reported that Cedricov was seen helping a man search for his lost dog. This man was asking other small kids to look for his black and white dog that had jumped out of his car. Okay, I have to pause here because this is something that my dad would... I remember being a child and him telling me, and I think it's just because he thought I would for sure go with a man with a puppy. (laughs) (laughs) Adults don't need children's help. 100%. And strangers do not need to be giving you any candy or any of that. I remember having several conversations. If a man is saying, here, I have puppies in this van, like come and look. Or if, you know, if he's saying, I lost my dog, it's over, he ran over here. Do not go near him. I mean, I'm sure that Silica's parents probably had similar conversations Mm -hmm. with her, but you know, apparently she just had a really big heart and it's really tough. I know no kids are listening to this, but adults do not need kids help. So this is a red flag right away. Back to Silica. So she had been biking around the neighborhood earlier on in the night, and she was even seen knocking on doors, asking anyone who would answer if they'd seen a dog. So I guess the story kind of put together through sightings is that Cedrica and her sister come upon this man. This man tells them about the dog. They separate. Cedrica starts looking for the dog. And at some point, it's kind of theorized that the man and Cedrica link back up together. As I said, she's described as someone who's always willing to help. She was part of the girl guides and was a very happy little girl. At this time, she was five foot tall and 70 pounds. Cedrica had reddish brown hair, naturally brown eyes, and at the time of her disappearance had freckles. More eyewitnesses would later come forward and say that around 7 p.m., they had seen the girls walk out of the woods and they had seen a man following them. The man was described as medium built from 30 to 40 years old. He was wearing a t-shirt and shorts and maybe driving a red car. Around 8.30 that night, before her parents are aware that she's missing, her bike is found by, I'm assuming, a neighbor leaning against a fire hydrant on the corner of the streets Chabanel and Chape. So as I mentioned, Sidiga's parents kind of jump into action right away. They go out looking for her, but they can't find her. They immediately phone the police and report her as missing. They were really fast acting. It was probably like 20 to 30 minutes after 9 o'clock. So basically, the minute they couldn't locate her, maybe I'm thinking Melissa had mentioned something about the man and the dog. So they thought, no, this is not right. And they called the police. Mm -hmm. When police show up, it's assumed that she is just missing. Maybe she had walked off or is just lost. There's always the good old runaway theory that gets thrown in there so often. Abduction is not really the initial thought. Search parties are organized by the community. Everyone is out looking for Cedrica. On August 2nd, investigators start to treat her disappearance as an abduction. Because of this, the Sûreté du Québec took over the investigation from the smaller Trois-Rivières Police Service. This is from Wikipedia. The Sûreté du Québec is the provincial police service for the Canadian province of Quebec. No official English names exist, but the agency's name is sometimes translated to Quebec Provincial Police or QPP in English language sources. I feel like QPP is what I know them by. Like, I've definitely heard that, but I had never heard the Sûreté du Québec. 
no Amber Alert is sent out at this time. Now I feel like Amber Alert is something that people know a lot about. We get them straight to our cell phones. The cell phones ring really loud and they let us know, you know, if there's a child missing, what they were last wearing, and I'd say we get them, I don't know, a couple times a year? Mm -hmm, at least, yeah. Yeah. So Canada's first Amber Alert program was implemented in Alberta in late 2002. Since then, all of the provinces have implemented it. So at this time, an Amber Alert was something that was available to this police force and they did not use it. But again, the community did really get together for Cedrica. They organized many searches kind of continuously and they bring in helicopters as well to help. And like Marie said, they put up many missing posters and as well as billboards, flyers, things were really happening in this small community. Unfortunately, nothing was coming up. Her bike was really the only thing that had been left behind. On August 13th, a $80,000 reward was offered in exchange for any information. Later, it would be raised to $170,000 in 2009. Between August 2007 and July 2008, many newspapers published information about Cedrica's disappearance. If there's one thing to say about this case is that it was really kept alive in the news. Even though there really was no new information that, you know, news outlets at least had access to. This next part is from a CBC article. Henri Provencher, Cedrica's paternal grandfather, told the Canadian press that when a child dies in an accident, there is closure, which is not the case in abductions. You don't know where your child is. It's hell every day, he said. You wonder where she is, what she's doing, what they're doing to her. Are they taking care of her? Is she being abused? There was a lot of wasted time. If I've abducted a child, give me two hours and I'm across the border into the United States. Let's talk about the investigation. Investigators focus on sightings of a red car that I mentioned earlier. With more information, they were able to get more details. It was described as a red sedan with chrome door handles. As they do more investigating, they find that this car had been seen by surveillance cameras at a nearby gas station. With the help of this footage, investigators are able to figure out that the car is a 2004 Red Acura TSX model. They could also tell by the video that the car was the standard model, by the way it was driving. They look at only 258 vehicles of this model and color that were registered in the province. That does not feel like a lot to me. Really, to me, I feel like that's a lot. You feel like that's a lot? Okay, I didn't feel like that was a lot. I don't know why. Like, if you just think, like, a Honda Civic, how many are registered in <laughs> the province? True, never mind. Yeah, you're right. Like, a black Honda Civic. Yeah. Um, or, like, a black 2005 Honda mm -hmm. Civic or whatever. Like, I still feel like, I mean, maybe this is, like, a um, like a less common car, but I don't know. I was kind of like, wow, that really cuts it down. Like, could you imagine your pool of suspects is, like, literally anyone, and then it's 250 people? Yeah, okay. Fair. Luckily, there was only six that matched the characteristics of the one described and seen on the surveillance footage. That really cuts the suspect list down. Yeah. Most of the owners of these cars had an alibi for the days that they went missing. I don't even know how. Again, I feel like we've talked about this. I don't remember last week that well, mm -hmm. but like this is like a couple years later and they're able to remember what they were doing. So like I said, most of these owners had alibis, actually all did, except for one, a man named Jonathan. I will hold his last name and that'll become kind of more clear as to why I'm doing that later. On September 6th of 2007, Jonathan meets with investigators. He tells them that on the day of Citrica's disappearance, he went golfing around 4.30, probably until about 7.30. He then went to his parents' house for a quick little visit. 
and then he spent the rest of the night watching a movie at home. Not really a solid alibi. So there's a lot of movement going on there, and also he was alone at home for a while, but you're not always with someone. Like, people are alone at home, especially if you live alone. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, um, sometimes I'm always just like home alone, chilling, watching TV by myself. Who's going to say I was actually home? My dogs? Like, no. You just have to constantly be videotaping yourself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like have cameras in your house just for that one day. Just for alibi. Yeah, just in case. So on this day as well, he agrees to have his car searched, but conveniently his car is in the repair shop. This is kind of conflicting reportings. I am just giving you the information I was able to find. He would later change his mind, but by that time, investigators were kind of dead set on getting a warrant. And when they had, they found no forensic evidence in the car. Investigators told the public that they were sure the car was involved. And this is hard because eyewitness testimony, if you follow true crime, you know that it's reliable, but it's not that reliable. Like you can't kind of base an entire case on just that because it's like it's reliable enough to get you some evidence. A suspect or something. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, but if it doesn't bring you anywhere, then you can't really do anything with it. No, and like you can't go after someone just because someone saw a red car with chrome handles and that person, you know. So it's tough for investigators at this point. Jonathan would meet with investigators a total of six times before October 24th of that year. During this time, police would put him under surveillance. He was asked to take a polygraph. He refused many times. At this point, his lawyer tries to kind of like cut a deal, which doesn't really make much sense to me. His lawyer tries to say that he will do the test, but if he fails, he doesn't want the information to be used against him. But if he passes, he wants investigators to do a press release clearing his name, which is not really how that works. (laughs) Yeah. So polygraphs are not like kind of admissible as evidence in court, but they do really help investigators rule someone out or help them narrow down on someone, right? There is some science behind them, I guess. So he doesn't do one. It is tough because I think that if you get arrested, you should call your lawyer. <laughs> like, call, don't talk, call your lawyer. ASAP. <laughs> ASAP. And polygraph tests are kind of iffy. Like, I kind of respect someone saying well, like, no, even if they didn't do it. Yeah, I would just be absolutely terrified to do one knowing that I'm not guilty. Like, what happens if I don't pass it, but I know I didn't do the crime? Then what? You know what I mean? It's kind of that feeling. It's like when a cop pulls you over. It's never happened to me, but I would imagine yeah. this is what it feels like. And you're just like in pure panic, but like mm. you either were like speeding or you know you didn't do anything wrong. And it's just like one of those routine checks, but you're still like sweating, like anxiety through the roof. For me, that happens all the time. Every time, not that I go on trips often, but every time I go through airport security, I am terrified <laughs> that I have something I'm not supposed to have. Like, terrified. you're like, I'm a good person. <laughs> I'm like, technically i know i have nothing but i'm like what if someone put something in there you know and they're gonna take me down pure like panic for absolutely no reason Mm -hmm. so there are rumors at this point that jonathan is planning on fleeing to switzerland where there's no extradition treaty to canada but i don't really know i guess this is kind of information that came out later and at some point around this time he destroys the car what it just says destroys i don't know if he sold it he brought it to salvage yard he gets rid of the car but they had already looked at it and there's no forensic evidence so in 2009 investigators conduct an undercover mr big operation it's back baby (laughs) i love those super not legal anymore i'm pretty sure 
but these are really interesting. Um, so basically, Jonathan wins a trip to Mont Tremblant. Surprise! <laughs> oh you want a trip? And he packs his bags and he gets going. And a bunch of other people have also won a trip to Tremblant. <laughs> these are all undercover police officers. I really wonder how they told him that he was winning a trip. Because you know those like scam phone calls where it's like, you want a cruise. I'm it's 99% like- sure they called him. <laughs> But, like, 2009, like, now you get those phone calls every single day. 2009, yeah. like, okay, maybe I'm buying it. I don't know. Now the government is, like, warning you against those phone calls. Back then, they're like, answer our phone call so we can track yeah. you. So he's kind of mingling with people while he's there, and he really connects with this this one guy that's there. The two hit it off, and they start hanging out. So I think they take the friendship outside of this trip but that wasn't exactly clear but from like context i'm pretty sure that they meet here and then they become friends and then they stay friends after this trip so again just to remind you guys the idea of a mr big operation is that they are trying to get him to admit or say any statements that would be incriminating um so they basically befriend to him trying to get him to be part of a community often it's like a crime family or an organization at this point it just looks like it's kind of like a friendship but the goal of this is really try to get him to incriminate himself with this new bestie that he's made At some point in this friendship, Jonathan admits that he has a bit of a gambling problem. The undercover officer offers to give him $15,000 to help him become a professional poker player. So I think before the $15,000, he was giving him small amounts of money to gamble and kind of saying like, I trust you. I know you're a good poker player. I trust you to gamble my money. And he was kind of trying to continue to build a rapport with him. But I think once he offers him the $15,000, Jonathan is like, this is sketch. Mm. and i don't know so he basically cuts the friendship off oh no so the mr big operation is a bust oh so i think this investigation the undercover one lasts a bit more than a year 13 months or so but not many details are available about the operation so basically what i've said is all that we know on december 11th of 2015 Three hunters are out in the woods in Saint-Maurice, a small town near Trois-Rivières, close to Highway 40 and about 15 kilometers from the last place Cédrica had been seen. There, they find human remains. The next day, these remains are confirmed to be those of Cédrica. She had gone missing in 2007 and was found in 2015. Hmm. Did you know that she had been found? I knew. I knew she had been found, but I, I couldn't click on any articles about about that. After she was found, Cedrica's dad posted on his Facebook wall. He thanked the community for all of their help. I'm just gonna, I translated a couple snippets and I'll, I'll let Marie read them. I want to thank everyone who is involved in finding Cedrica. Without you, we would be at the same point still searching. You let us move to the next step in this horrible situation. And now our mourning can slowly begin. After she was found, the community held a vigil for her. This is from a CBC News article mentioned earlier. Representatives of Cédrica's scout troop, the 27e Réseau Les Tournesols, were in attendance as were a number of teenage girls who were scouts alongside her. Yannick Laliberté Caron, a district commissioner for the scouts in Trois-Rivières, said it was important for the organization to show its solidarity with the Provencher family. He said, We've been there for the family for the past eight years. We had adult members participate in the first search. I always read these things, but then to have you read them back to me, like I just got chills. And the fact that her scout troop was named Les Tournesols. I know. Oh, that one really. Oh, Oh, this is a tough case. Once she was found, investigators gathered in the woods and attempted to find as much evidence as they could. 
They knew this would be minimal considering how long it had been since she had been missing. We don't have a lot of information about her manner of death or her time isn't like what date even if I don't even know if they know. But if they do, they're not releasing the information to the public. The following is from another CBC News article mentioned earlier. Sergeant Guy Lapointe told reporters police have received more than 200 tips from the public since the girl's remains were found. Lapointe offered few details about what police have uncovered so far, saying he didn't want to compromise the investigation. Our absolute priority is to make an arrest, make charges, and ultimately get a guilty verdict, he says. He said they are satisfied with the search underway. Although the news of Siddiqa being found was tragic for the family and the community, now everyone was really hoping they would get some answers. On December 16th of 2015, the media outlets officially report that investigators are looking to a person of interest who had been seen around the area where Siddiqa had disappeared. The police also put out the information about the 2004 Red Acura TSX model. At this point, they had been suspecting Jonathan of being a person of interest, but obviously they hadn't released any of this out to the media because they didn't have anything substantial. In August of 2016, Jonathan is arrested and charged with six counts of possessing and distributing child pornography. He is released on bail with conditions. At this point, it's reported in the media that Jonathan is the number one suspect in Sidlika's murder. This is very abnormal. Again, as far as I know, there's no legitimate concrete evidence that he's done this, and they've released his name out to the public. He's going to be public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. People have been invested in this case, and they are looking for somebody to blame and somebody to be brought to justice for this crime. Obviously, this is not the, the most stand-up guy from the charges he's been arrested on, but it's really tough to say at this point if he really had anything to do with Sidlika's disappearance and murder. I think that the information is basically leaked by law enforcement or someone in the legal world that was a part of um, them trying to get him for Sidlika's murder, but it's kind of hard to tell. Also, child pornography, aka just videos of kids being abused. I don't like that, and I think that's not really something that people use as much anymore. Like, pornography is something that people do for like leisure or whatever do on their mm-hmm. own time. There's no such thing as like child pornography. There are just videos of kids being abused and sexually assaulted, and we won't even go into it. Right, yeah, yeah. I know but what you it's mean. not like this, like, uh, I, you guys get what I'm saying. On October 6th of 2018, Jonathan is acquitted of the charges for the child abuse videos. So basically, he is acquitted of this because the evidence they had on him was considered to have been obtained illegitimate. Oh my god. Illegitimately. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't change the fact that he, like, has it. You gotta have legit evidence or else anyone can be just thrown in jail. So, basically, without any warrants, Facebook gave them 12 IP addresses associated with his accounts within within a year or so of when they laid the charges on him. They basically justified making the request very urgent because Cedrica had been found. But the issue is that Cedrica being found had nothing to do with with him. the charges of the videos that he had that he was owning and distributing of kids being sexually abused. So technically, they did this under like a rushed or... Okay, this is all me interpreting all this, so don't correct me, but take it with whatever you will. They basically rush this order and tell Facebook, I think, that this is urgent because it's associated with remains that have just been found of this little girl, so they really need the information ASAP. 
But those are two separate cases. He's not being charged with anything related to Sitka. So it's kind of an oopsie on investigators' parts, I guess. But it just seems to me like everyone was so invested in finding her. And they, for whatever reason, there is a strong possibility that we have no idea what the reasons are. Because the information is not accessible to public. But investigators feel 99% sure, from what I understand, that this guy has done it. Jonathan has never admitted being Sitka's murderer. It's reported that Estricate's Quebec tried everything to get him to talk. I think the creepiest pictures of him just to freak you out. His <laughs> eyes are like about to I, pop I, out of I, his I, face. I picked the worst ones just to freak you out. <laughs> so Jonathan's picture and name are obviously available on the internet. You Google this case, his name is there. Tough if he didn't do it. Real tough because he's now known as this kidnapper and murderer of this little girl. But if he did do it, he's not even in jail. Yes. So this is a tough one. I am not going to release his last name. You guys can find it extremely I will. easily. I'm <laughs> no, just joking. Wait, I'm just joking. Wait. But I'm going to let Marie decide if she wants to post pictures of him. Um, Fair? Yeah. Okay. This uh, probably has ruined his life. So mm-hmm. if he did do it, good. If he didn't do it, that sucks big time. And the following is from a CTV News article. A lawsuit was filed in a Montreal courtroom that alleges the actions of the provincial police force as they focused on Jonathan irrevocably tarnished the reputation of him and his family and had a devastating effect on their personal lives and the family business. Previously filed court documents have shown that police quickly focused their investigation on Jonathan after nine-year-old Cédrica disappeared in Trois-Rivières in 2007. For years, police pursued Jonathan as their key suspect because he owned a red Acura and a similar vehicle was seen near Cédrica's last known location. The arrest and the disclosure that the QPP considered him the only suspect in Cédrica's disappearance, even though he was never charged in that crime, led to an outpouring of anger throughout Trois-Rivières and across Quebec. People screamed and jeered at Jonathan during his court appearances, calling him a pedophile and a murderer. Others posted nasty reviews of the company's business and the family removed their name from the building. The court filing alleges people scrawled death threats on their garage door. Someone tied a noose to the light on their front porch and people hurled eggs at their home. The lawsuit intends to prove that police had the goal of crystallizing in public opinion the association between Jonathan and the disappearance and murder of Cédrica Provencher, all without ever filing criminal charges against Jonathan for lack of evidence. So this lawsuit was filed for $10.5 million, which again, I I hate to say it, but if he didn't do it, mm-hmm. that sucks. Yes, it sucks. And this was in 2019 that the article that Marie just read from came out and they had a family business register with their last name. And several members of the family, I believe, work for this family business. So immediately, like, it obviously destroyed Jonathan's life, but it had an impact on his family and his loved ones. I couldn't really find any information, you know, trying to find out if he won or not. Maybe they settled and then information is not public knowledge. But yes, this did go to court and there was a, a major lawsuit against the QPP. But in the end, nobody was ever charged for Sidrika's disappearance and murder. How you feeling? Well, I feel like that's what I was scared of. And that's why I never clicked on any articles once her remains were found. Because I saw them. I just didn't want to read them. Because I was like, if this Mm -hmm. isn't going to bring any evidence, what will? But it's really scary to think that like. That's it. That's it. I almost wish that there had been more suspects. Like they didn't have to name them by names. But I wish we could have 
and again, because this case is unsolved, there's probably a ton of information that they're holding back from us. But I wish that we could have seen them like go through different avenues because all the information mm-hmm. that we have is that they focus on Jonathan and because they can't get him, that's it. Like, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like I need more. I need to know what else they did. I know they probably had more than one. Su- well, I'm hoping they probably had more than one suspect at the time. Like, oh, it is just really hard. <laughs> It's really hard. We don't like the unsolved ones, but they're important to talk about. You never know. We hope that one day Cédrica Branchet's murder and kidnapping will be solved and our hurt goes out to her family. As this case is one that really touches me, I think back, let's say in 2015, when her remains were found, I wasn't ready to like go there and like know the whole story. But I think from what I've learned from these last few months of doing this podcast and, and going through these kinds of cases is like, I know we say we prepare for life's most terrible things, but actually though, like, I feel like it helps to just know what can happen in this world in order to like use it to just acknowledge his power. Yeah, exactly. And like, at first I, I feel like I was more of like ignorance is bliss, which is definitely not the best, but I think it's hard to go through these cases and to, to learn that the world is a scary place. But at the same time, I think it can be necessary in some cases to just like really know what's going on and really know how you can avoid things like this happening to you. Not that, you know, sometimes it's, it's unavoidable, but it's, I think it's good to know. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's different for everyone. A lot of people are at least somewhat into true crime, even if they're not like kind of like these, you know, diehard people like I am, but I kind of get the ignorance is bliss thing. But to me, it's like, as soon as I hear one thing, Mm-hmm. Like, as soon as you've seen that poster, yeah. it's like, I need to know. Mm-hmm. I need to know more because what happened? Like, this yeah. this doesn't just, you know. And it is it is that thing with the more that you know, the more you feel ready to face bad things that are part mm-hmm. of this world. And there are a lot of good things, but we have to acknowledge that, you know, this world isn't necessarily a totally safe place. It is not. It has never been. And I'm sad to say, I don't think it ever will be a totally safe place for everyone. Wish no. it could be, but yeah, we definitely hope to contribute to things like this not happening ever again but especially not as often and that's why this week we will be donating to Fondation Cédrica Provencher. Yay Cédrica. Mm-hmm. I'm happy we're donating for her. Like this is like yeah. a long time coming from me being 10 years old seeing her poster till now. Look at me chills. <laughs> Honestly like go going through our our show notes and just uh, Renee always puts pictures like about what we're talking about just like seeing her missing poster and the billboard like I because they're bringing you like a tad yeah. of closure well I don't know because no one was found you know what I mean I know but, but I, for your for your little like yeah six, seven, eight-year-old self however I think it were. I think it as like silly as it may sound like it it makes me happy that I know her full story because before this, I was just so scared to even think of anything about her that I would just picture her missing poster. And all I knew was that she was taken from her street while she was riding her bike and that her remains were found. That's mm-hmm. all I knew. So this is from their website. Little Cédrica Provencher is at the very heart of the foundation bearing her name. She was only nine years old on that nice summer evening of July 31st, 2007, when she was lured and abducted by one or more predators while she was just riding around close to home. She had been asked to find help a little dog that was supposedly lost. 
She was never seen again. This happened in Trois-Rivières, Quebec, a seemingly quiet city that was not ready to face an event like this one. Although the first minutes after a disappearance are crucial, endless hours went by before anyone considered there might have been an abduction. The Cédrica Provencher Foundation's mission is to do everything in its power to prevent other children and their families from suffering the same fate. It strives to take all the necessary measures to innovate in child abduction prevention and devise methods through concrete and effective citizen involvement throughout the world. With the help of citizens of all ages around the world, we want to combine all useful skills and expertise to work towards a common goal, which is to protect our children and provide a quick and efficient response should a similar tragedy strike again. I just want to add that Henri Provencher, Cédrica's grandfather, is the president of this foundation. Oh, I love that. If you would like to contribute to Fondation Cédrica Provencher, the link to donate will be in our description and Instagram slash TikTok bio. Pictures for this case will be posted on our Instagram, so please follow us at Terrible True Crime. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review below. If you have any case suggestions, please send us a message on our socials or email us at terribletruecrime at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us. And see you next time. Oh.